0: Our next guest joins us from the city of Ottawa, where he works at Carleton University as a research, a postdoctoral research fellow. He is also associated with the Transition Accelerator and wrote a piece recently in the Conversation.com entitled there aren't enough batteries to electrify all cars. So focus on trucks and buses instead. A pleasure to welcome Cameron Roberts to the program. Mr. Roberts, Cameron, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. How are you doing? I am doing just great, thank you. Uh, my team is uh, still in the playoffs, Cameron. No shot there at the Ottawa Senators at all. Uh, let's talk. Well, actually, you may be angrier even to hear this, but I'm a Leafs fan, so. Oh, ouch. So you're you're going to be a little stoked for a, a little later on this afternoon with that game five, the only one in the first round to go to a, the elimination final game. Should be a lot of fun later in the day.
1: Yeah, I might
0: watch it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just bet. So let's talk about this piece you wrote in the conversation. Uh, but first, I'd like our listeners to know about your affiliation, Cameron, because you are affiliated with something called the Transition Accelerator, which is a very interesting-looking project. Tell us more about that, and then we'll talk about the electrification of vehicles.
1: Yeah, great. So, um, the Transition Accelerator is uh, something I've been involved with for about a year and a half now. Um, and it's an organization of both academics working with practitioners um, and uh, people who are trying to make real change on the ground. And the idea is that we want to make, figure out ways to make big, fast change in um, Canadian energy systems happen so that we can actually start making progress in our uh, climate goals. And that. So we want to get a little bit beyond the debates about pipelines and carbon taxes and things like that and figure out how we can actually intervene in the real-life ways that that carbon emissions come from our everyday lives. So um, the big thing that's going on right now is there is a high... We have... I'm not very involved with this this project. I can't talk much about it, but we're working on a hydrogen trucking um, pilot project in Alberta. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm working at... An earlier phase in the process, so a lot more just doing some research and thinking as opposed to actually building stuff yet on personal mobility and trying to figure out how we can really allow people to uh, meet their mobility needs in a way that emits as little carbon as possible and what Practical changes can happen in the present and near future to, make, to accomplish that.
0: Okay, so let's uh, you were talking uh, about a hydrogen project, some hydrogen-powered trucks in Alberta, but it's interesting because the first line of the piece that you wrote that uh, came to our attention is, we need to change our transportation system. And we need to do it quickly. And that dovetails very nicely into what you described the mission statement of the uh, transition accelerator to be. But let's talk about the the difference between the hydrogen-powered truck experiment that you just described in Alberta, Cameron, versus what one would automatically assume to be um, option one, which is electrification of vehicles like trucks. Why hydrogen? Is it cheaper or is it just another option to examine?
1: Um, so the, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on hydrogen. Like I said, that's not my side of the project, What right. I can tell you is that the asset that people talk about most often for hydrogen, particularly when it comes to long range transportation, such as trucking is that you can get a, a much higher range out of a hydrogen powered truck than you can out of a battery powered one. Um, batteries tend to be very heavy and, the more and for which is fine for a passenger vehicle, which doesn't have much other weight to carry.
2: Right. But when you
1: have a truck which has to be loaded up with um, all kinds of cargo, you need a bigger battery to power that car, to move that cargo around. But then that battery weighs so much that you need more battery to move the battery around, and you get a bit of a problem. There is a debate there, and I'm not the most up to speed for it. There are people who will defend batteries for long distance trucking and have proposed solutions for that problem. But hydrogen is another proposed solution because of the range it can offer.
0: Ah, So as as I i interpret what you're saying about battery-powered trucks... Uh, it costs uh, it, the weight involved just to drag around enough battery to properly power the unit. You're going to be towing a, a lot of extra weight, which will compromise the ability to, to maximize the cargo load. You're going to have to sacrifice some cargo just to make room for uh, a battery, because, of course, these vehicles do have weight limitations on the highways, don't they?
1: Yes, exactly. And it is per- particularly highways um, that are the issue. So it's for long-range trucking that uh, this becomes particularly a problem. Right. Um, there, And that is something that I kind of wish I'd made clear in my piece, actually. I didn't wind up writing. I mentioned the idea of battery-powered trucks, and I didn't really want to weigh in on the debate about long-range battery-powered trucks. I just wanted to... I, there's a lot of trucks that don't drive very long distances sure. today. Um, and Or smaller vehicles, like delivery vans. And for them... Um, in many, for many industrial sectors, there is, are, is some real potential here to use battery electric vehicles.
0: Let's go back to the title of the, uh, the article for a moment, Cameron. There aren't enough batteries to electrify all cars. Focus on trucks and buses instead. That's the headline they put on top of your piece. Why aren't yeah. there enough batteries?
1: So I think the, the, to, to start answering that question, you have to look at the math of climate change. Um, so, you know, battery powered vehicles are generally proposed as a solution to make it so that our transportation system is less harmful to the climate. Right. Um, and so when you look at the IPCC figures, you see that we have about th- this is, I'm looking at an article that was published in 2018. So these already have to be revised down. But in 2018, we had 17 years of current levels of emissions for a, only a 33% chance of remaining below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Above one and a half degrees Celsius, things get pretty scary. Um, we had only had 20 years for a two-thirds chance of remaining below two degrees. Um, so basically, this means, like I said in, in the first line of the article, if we need to make some change, and we need to do it very quickly. So when you want to talk about electrifying all vehicles about uh, as a way of making that change, Uh-oh. okay, that's certainly interesting. No. Um but the big question is: How quickly can you do that? How right. quickly can you replace every single vehicle on the road um, with electric? Well, we're making a lot of lithium batteries, a lot of electric vehicles right now, um, and uh, and and we're making a lot more factories to build more batteries to build more electric vehicles. So sure. that starts to look encouraging. Um, however. And, and so, yeah, we could, in 2028, um, let me just double-check what my math said on this. Uh, I want to want to make sure I get this right. Reaching
0: for um, his trusty calculator.
1: Yeah, well, I'm just rereading the article that I wrote. Um, but in, in 2028, we could make about 40 million electric vehicles, based on forecasts of how much production capacity we'll have. Okay. Um, the problem is that there, there are over a, a billion vehicles driving around on the roads today. Um, and we're adding, we added 100 million more in 2019. Um, so the numbers, there's some very, very huge numbers we're trying to tackle here. And every single one of those vehicles, is, if it's not electric, is pumping carbon into the atmosphere. Right. Um, so, how do we change the system quickly enough to achieve, to, to get the reductions we need in time for that deadline uh, of, you know, 17 years, 15 years if we want? if we want to really go for the one and a half degrees or like 20 or 30 years if we want to be a bit riskier and go for two degrees of warming, it's really hard to make the numbers add up on that. And so the conclusion I came to is that electric vehicles are great. We should be using them. They have a lot of value. But... I don't think it works to just say that everyone is going to be driving a car to the same extent that they do today, and it's going to be electric. I don't think you can make that work in the near future.
0: Okay, let's talk about another deadline. This one from the NDP government of British Columbia, Cameron. They have decided that, uh, in fact, are working on legislation, if indeed they haven't already tabled some, that will say as of 2040... In British Columbia, there will no longer be the sale of gas-powered vehicles to be allowed. Now, whether or not that's realistic uh, is uh, is the question for you. Are they dreaming in Technicolor, or is that timeline achievable?
1: Um, well, I certainly hope so. I have read a little bit. I, British Columbia is often mentioned as, a, as a, quite a positive example of policy policy. Um, not just in Canada, but worldwide. In some of the research I do for uh, for encouraging electric vehicles, okay. um, I, in terms of uh, phasing out all electric vehicles by 2040, um, I mean, given the timelines that I just said with climate change, I, I hope so, right? Because that's, uh, or rather, phasing out gasoline, uh, gas, gas vehicles, because because if anything, that is, um, I mean, I know these. these this is tough to look at, because it does sound scary, it does sound very hard, and it does kind of stretch our idea of what's possible, but the laws of physics that dictate climate change don't really care about our economic and political problems. Either we solve this problem, or we face planetary catastrophe. Um, So I think we really need to have an attitude towards this, that the comparison I like to make is a bit like we had in, in the Second World War, when we had a major global challenge and if we didn't meet that challenge very bad things were going to happen and meeting that challenge wasn't always comfortable but we had to rise to the occasion i think fortunately that electrifying and and decarbonizing our transportation system can actually be a lot more fun than fighting a war i think we'll get a lot more positive side benefits out of it but I think at the end of the day, the logic is the same, that we we really don't have much of a choice but to be ambitious here.
0: Is there a part of the world, I need. I, I, mean, I should let you know, I've only got a minute left before the news, but in that time, is there a part of the world right now, Cameron, that's more cutting edge than anywhere else in terms of not only the push to electrify their transportation system, but actual boots on the ground doing things about it?
1: Uh, so the example that most often gets raised is Norway, um, and they have. I, I don't have the list of all the policies they're using off the top of my head, um, but they have. Uh, they have things like very generous tax incentives, um, no road tax, for example, no charges on toll roads. Um, I, it's, it's, I think it's largely demand side policies, so though they might have a, uh, a, a zero-emission vehicle mandate to encourage the supply side of things as well. Um, and they have seen very, very rapid uh, growth in the sales of electric vehicles. Um, but Norway, I think it does it is worth saying, has also worked very hard on other sides of the sustainable mobility transition. All right. um, and I think that's the important thing, that merely focusing on electric vehicles by itself It's a great thing to do, but you need to do
0: more than just that. We're in conversation with Cameron Roberts. Mr. Roberts is a postdoctoral research fellow in sustainable transportation. Joining us from Carleton University in Ottawa, he wrote a piece recently for theconversation.com entitled, There Aren't Enough Batteries to Electrify All Cars. Focus on trucks and buses instead. And Cameron, in the middle of our conversation now, uh, you talked about Norway as being one of the best examples of countries that have, through policy and, and uh, direction, established uh, uh, an electrification Process that uh, it seems to be uh, pretty much at the tip of the spear back here in North America as we look to electrifying our our, our vehicles. You're saying basically for, for for a couple of reasons that you've partly identified at least, there just simply aren't going to be enough batteries. There isn't going to be enough battery capacity to power all the cars we would like to have. So why focus on trucks and buses instead? Because there are more of them and they together contribute more carbon to the air than cars is that a fairly safe comparison commercial vehicles cameron uh contribute more on an annual basis than cars
1: um i i don't have figures in front of me right this moment for that about uh private cars versus trucks and buses so i'm not gonna say that right off the bat they certainly contribute quite a lot um and they also one other thing that they do contribute Disproportionately is local air pollution. If we get a- away from the discussion of climate change a little bit, um, a huge, huge proportion of the uh, of the air pollution that gets a lot of people killed um, every year is from diesel exhaust, and uh, and a lot and diesel exhaust comes predominantly in Canada from commercial vehicles. Um, so that's one very compelling reason to electrify commercial vehicles first. The other reason. Um, getting back to the climate change stuff, is that those are the hardest forms of transportation, usually, to switch onto something other than an individual road vehicle. Um, So there's a lot of people um, who could... And it obviously depends on people's individual situations. This is not something I'm saying universally. Sure. But there's a lot of people who are driving cars who don't necessarily need to be, particularly if we make investments in public transit and better cycling infrastructure and walkable neighborhoods and things like that. Um, Whereas it's going to be pretty hard to get, say, a load of Amazon packages that has to be delivered around the city onto a bus.
2: That's That's
1: true. That's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Um, Same with an ambulance or a school bus or a garbage truck, or any number of those sort of undersung workhorse vehicles that make our society function, right? Um, And so if we have a limited number of vehicles, a limited number of electric vehicles we can make, and it's not going to be enough to change every single private car Mm -hmm. into an electric vehicle, then the logic to me seems pretty obvious, that you need to focus on, on the, you can either demotorize, or you can de electrify or you can electrify, right? And it seems to me that the electrification should be mostly reserved for those vehicles that are hardest to demotorize.
0: And it would also seem, basically, if that's the approach, Cameron, those fleets of vehicles are owned, generally speaking, by large companies who would be able to take advantage of electrification for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it's tax deductible.
1: Yeah, and um, so there is a bit of a debate about this, about whether um, I interviewed a lot of people for some of my research on electric vehicles, um, and they came to different conclusions about whether, in, with the current level of technology and the current the way the market currently is, whether a company or say, an institution like maybe Canada Post um, can save will save money by going electric, or whether it will be a bit of an additional cost and they should be subsidized for it, or something like that. And there's, there's a debate about that. The, the, jury's, the jury's out on it. Um, but certainly in the near future um, with forthcoming advances in batteries, we are headed towards that. Uh, and um, at the end of the day, electricity is a lot cheaper than gasoline per unit of vehicle mile traveled. Um, so it, it is a potential major cost savings. One other point that is important is that even if, the money that you do spend on electricity, stays much closer to home. Uh, so for you guys out there in British Columbia, um, if, you're, if you're buying gasoline to power your cars, most of that gasoline, if I understand the, the British Columbian energy system correctly, is not coming from British Columbia. True, you're absolutely. You're generally sending yeah. that money outside the province. Right. Um, whereas you guys have a pretty fantastic um, provincial electrical system. If you uh, If you're paying for electricity, then that money stays in the province.
0: Well, let's talk about something else that has come to our attention in this past few days preparing for this conversation, and that's this whole thing about e-highways. Now, this is something that's happening in Britain, uh, and it's very experimental. And essentially what they're trying to do is uh, take uh, uh, roads and truck routes, major highways, and electrify them, essentially uh, turning large trucks into trolley buses as as trolley buses run around a city and we have a lot of them in Vancouver still uh they they they're connected to the wires by the the poles on all that sort of thing well this is the same notion of, of a connector uh, mounted on top of a vehicle that runs along wires now of course it would mean the trucks pretty much have to stay in a pretty straight line they don't get to wander much but in terms of cost savings uh yes once the trucks are modified and And this route is installed doesn't represent cost savings because it would seem to get things up and running would be hideously expensive
1: um yeah so it's certainly i this is the first i'd heard of that while you were talking about it i'm I'm sitting at my computer here i did a quick google it looks very very interesting and it looks like it could be a real a real answer to the problem of uh, a battery range for for long distance heavy-duty trucking um I was in Vancouver about two years ago, the, f- the first time I'd been there since I was a teenager, and I was, I was quite amazed by those, uh, those trolley buses you guys have there. I thought those were great. Um, and I don't see any reason why you couldn't use something similar on the highways. Um, I, don't, I am not an engineer. I don't know the technical challenges. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are differences when you're driving at that speed compared to driving at the speed of the city bus. Um, but then again, there are high-speed trains that go way exactly. faster than highway trucks that's that use right. the same system.
0: It's the same principle.
1: Um, yeah, so I, I think that's a very interesting option to look at. And and I think, going back to my article, I think that could actually really help with the battery constraints because for a vehicle like that, you're going to need a much smaller battery than you otherwise would because you're, you're getting mo. you probably do still need a battery for the times that you aren't in range of 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 that overhead system, right? but you're not going to need a battery that's going to carry you hundreds of kilometers, and that's that's great. That means that you can allocate those batteries elsewhere or just build more trucks.
0: Uh, Not a lot of time left in the conversation, and back to this whole notion of fleet conversion, Cameron. Are you finding, based on the interviews and the homework you're doing, that there are large companies with large transportation fleets that are looking for reasonably priced alternatives right now?
1: Um, so I didn't talk to any companies that are actually uh, th- that are actually doing this. I would like to. This research is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did talk. But a number of the people I talked to did point to a a real a real unfilled demand. Um, that there's a huge uh, there's many fleets, both co- both uh, commercial fleets, um, government fleets, um, that are actively looking for electric vehicles. Sure, that I bet. Their yeah. needs because they're aware of the potential cost savings. Um, and are actually having trouble finding availability, um, partly because there hasn't been enough research and development in this area. It's starting to ramp up now, which is good news, but not uh, not enough just yet. And also partly because of that battery shortage I talked about, sure. right, is that they're just not uh, there aren't enough being built. Um, so, but I do know I, I have actually a very good friend who works at Canada Post, um, and he's uh, he's told me a bit about them trying to electrify their fleet right. in fairly uh, fairly short time. So I think that could that's a pretty big fleet right there. Sure is. Um, so I I think it is something that there's plenty of interest in, and I think what really needs to happen is more supply of these vehicles to meet that
0: interest. Well, it's a very good piece that you wrote. It allows the reader to develop an understanding, perhaps a little wider uh, shot of the big picture in terms of understanding there's a tremendous rush to electrify and for probably all the right reasons, there's just not uh, uh, not enough technology to get it done yet. The article is entitled, There Aren't Enough Batteries to Electrify All Cars. Focus on trucks and buses instead. It's a great read, won't take you long and it'll get you kind of up to speed with this electrification stuff. The author is Cameron Roberts, joining us this morning from Carleton University in Ottawa. Cameron, thanks for this. Great to have you on the program. We'll talk again.
1: It was great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, and enjoy that Leafs game this afternoon. I will. And time to welcome back Jennifer McCracken. Jennifer is a licensed insolvency trustee and a senior manager with BDO Debt Solutions here in Vancouver. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you back with us. A couple of headlines to draw your attention to to begin our conversation. One, consumer insolvencies have hit a record decline in the second quarter, but with the CERB winding down and the deadline for deferrals drawing nearer, filings are expected to soar. That's number one. Number two, fewer Canadians are feeling financial anxiety during the pandemic. That's is from Mario Canseco and Research Company. Mario's going to join us later in the show to talk about that. So we have this strange dichotomy going on here this morning, Jennifer. We have uh, numbers, uh, increasing numbers of Canadians expressing lowering degrees of anxiety during this pandemic crisis on the one hand, and, and insolvency uh, recordings and filings down for the second quarter, which was just absolutely dreadful from a production point of view. So this leads one to ask, is this the calm before the storm or what else is going on?
3: Well, it is a very uh, interesting uh, dichotomy, as you say. So we would have anticipated, knowing the financial impact of the COVID-19, that we would see at least steady insolvency filings or perhaps an increase. So yeah. to see such a substantial decline is very surprising. But when you put that, that number aside and just say, hey, wait a second, what's really happening in Canadian households? When we have had so many banks sign on for deferrals, And we know that Canadians have been able to maintain some economic stability from the SERB benefit. It actually kind of makes sense because you realize, look, a lot of times people come in when they're getting calls. They're being harassed. They're getting letters. Mm -hmm. When there's a reprieve and a break, they're probably not feeling the pinch as much. They're not really having that anxiety around their debt. And they're saying, you know what? we're going to wait and see, we're going to wait for the stability, um, we're going to wait for this to pass, and I'll probably deal with my debt later. And that's what, why we're saying it's probably the calm
0: before the storm. Interesting, because the numbers uh, say here in British Columbia, filings are down by about 29% in the second quarter compared to the first quarter, and by 35% year over year. This is almost hard to believe, Jennifer.
3: Well, it is. it Also, remember, Sterling, that because I was on your show earlier when we talked about the fact there were record insolvency filings at the end of 2019. Right. So we know the financial picture was not rosy for Canadians. We know that they live paycheck to paycheck. We also know household debt sitting at 1.77. So this is not a situation where the debt has gone. Right. We know Canadians have high levels of debt and that they live paycheck to paycheck. So to see that at the end of 2019, we have record insolvency filings, and then to have it just drop precipitously in 2020, it's just telling us that you know, Canadians are maintaining, and we also have to understand, it is a very stressful time for Canadians, you know, being in the middle of an unprecedented time, like a pandemic like this, you know, the focus is around other things, and they're they're just really putting their debt on pause and planning to deal with it later.
0: And to a certain extent, the CERB is actually doing what it's supposed to do, which is keeping a lot of people afloat during a time of tremendous um, insecurity.
3: I, I agree with you, and you know we've had seen over eight million unique applications for SERB. There's a maximum of six benefits that you can collect from that. So for folks that backdated their application to March, this month is going to be the last payment that they'll receive. Okay. And of course the program does end in September. There is talk of transitioning from SERB to an EI program, although right. the details have not been you know published or talked about as of yet. But uh, certainly the SERB has done what it's intended to, which is to, to help individuals sort of just. Make ends meet and um, certainly we, we can see these insolvency filings definitely reflect the fact that the CERB has helped Canadians which Jennifer, is obviously a very I, good thing
0: I'm not even sure of the of this answer so this is why I'm going to ask you just point blank <laughs> if you have if you're a, a mortgage holder but you're a mortgage holder on a rental property And uh, are you allowed to defer the mortgage on your rental property the same way that you would be allowed to defer the the mortgage on your personal residential property?
3: Yeah, a mortgage is a mortgage. So okay. they, a bank is going to assess um, your application. And we also know that there's also rentals, you know, through BC Housing, for instance, there are resources available for renters. So you're going to see that some landlords um, were able to sort of capitalize on collecting uh, the rent payments through those programs. Right. Yep. Uh, we know that the financial institutions across the country have received over six hundred, or, or, or 760,000 uh, mortgage deferral applications. So just to put it in context, of how many, uh, first of all, how many banks have signed on. So this is great that the banks are out there to support Canadians, sure. uh, but there have been that many applications. But it is a deferral, right? So that amount does have to be paid. So um, it, it is an interesting comment, though, Sterling, because the, when you think about uh, the landscape out there for, for anybody that's a landlord, um, it, it, is, it is difficult, <laughs> right? Um, it, it's, it, it definitely there has been an impact there.
0: Oh, no question. And uh, the reason I was asking about deferrals uh, is because uh, I was going to get to the next point, which is talking about credit uh, scores and credit ratings and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. If you request a deferral from your bank, even though the bank has happily signed on to the program and recognizes the need for uh, having the capacity to defer mortgages, if nonetheless you, you request and are granted a deferral, in addition to having that debt just pushed down the road a few months, That is going to impact your credit score in some way, isn't it?
3: You know, that's something actually that I've been, it's a really great question because I've encouraged folks that I've talked to about the deferral to actually clarify that with your financial institution. Mm -hmm. Remember that a lot of credit reporting is totally automated. And so it is important to inquire to your bank, how are you reporting this? A lot of banks are actually choosing not to, they're not going to report a negative deficiency when they've agreed and consented to a deferral. But I would caution you that because the systems are automated, it would be very prudent to go on there and check and ensure so that if if, for instance, an institution said, Yes, okay, we're going to give you a deferral, and for some reason through the automated process it's now been reported as a deficiency, that you could actually file a dispute or deal directly with your bank to correct that. So, you, that is a, a part of the discussion that needs to happen for any individual that's phoning in and has discussed the deferral process. I mean, a lot of those deferrals, Sterling, are actually coming up at the end of September. So, right. um, certainly it would be something worthwhile for individuals to ensure that there's been no negative notations on their file during this period of time
0: interesting stuff and just to, before we take the break here how does one again sounds like a silly question but you hear this so often it's you know it's not a silly question how does one go about checking one's credit rating
3: you can go online and access your credit report. There's actually um, free online access uh, available. So we, for the COVID-19 pandemic, the credit agencies have stepped up. There's TransUnion and Equifax right. and permitted uh, free online access. So um, the other way to do it is just to have the report requested by mail. So you mail in a request to each of the agencies, and they'll send you back a paper copy of your report. And you can do that for free once a year. So those applications as well, if you prefer the paper format, a lot of folks do. Um, if they don't have a home computer and they're doing it on their phone, they'd rather have the paper, sure. then that's fine too. You can always get it mailed to you for free once a year.
0: As an insolvency trustee, how many people do you see or what percentage of people do you see who have never, ever checked their credit score?
3: Well, that's a great question, Sterling. I would say that in my practice, because of course we touch upon this in our counselling sessions, about 40% have, the A, they don't know the name of the two bureaus in Canada and that they've never checked their credit. So that is something that we recommend in terms of a financial literacy standpoint, that you would be getting a copy of your credit report each and every year, we also know that there's been breaches in access to personal information. Yes. So, for example, Life Labs had an incident, um, and they've offered free uh, credit reporting monitoring to any well, everybody in BC that was affected. And so, you can also go on their website and get your your code and your pass to get access to um, the free credit monitoring service they're offering for a year. So, remember that it's not just you know the, the identity theft and someone having your personal information can happen from something totally unrelated to your behavior, right? If there's been a compromise on a database somebody could also be using your personal information. So we also recommend it for, for things like monitoring for, for stuff like identity theft. It's yeah. very important you check it at least once
0: a year. I appreciate your patience with some pretty rudimentary stuff, but as you point out, there's a very high percentage of us who just don't pay attention to those details that perhaps would benefit from knowing uh, important bits of information about ourselves, like our credit score, as in how the financial world sees us. Joined by Jennifer McCracken from BDO Debt Solutions, Jennifer is an insolvency trustee and senior manager with BDO. And uh, Jennifer, before we took the break, we were talking about these remarkable numbers that uh, the superintendent of bankruptcy, no less, released a few days ago that across Canada, uh, insolvency filings in the second quarter, which uh, is going to go down in the history books as one of the most dreadful economic quarters in this uh, century, probably in in hindsight, 42% nationally a decline in filings of insolvency. He's here in BC 29% down from previous months. However, the analysis from uh, all of this is it's the calm before the storm. Jennifer says the Serb is in fact working. A lot of people are for the short term able to meet their obligations, but Jennifer also reminds us that the Serb runs out at the end of is it August or September, it's September isn't it, Jennifer?
3: It is September.
0: That's correct. At which point you may or may not be able to qualify for some kind of expanded EI benefit program, if that uh, is still necessary. Uh, but those details, we don't know them yet because they're still working on them. But the, it's, it's. Uh, uh, I suppose Jennifer, you you contrast that with corporate insolvencies, and there you might get a, a stronger taste of what could lie ahead because corporate insolvencies are on the rise.
3: That's right, and there was a uh, publish of uh, the statistics on, for example, the CCAA stat, so these are the large corporate filings, and we saw record numbers of, that, of those uh, filings. So we, we think, and, and a lot of people thought this beforehand, that what would happen is that we would see the impact to businesses, Canadian businesses, and we'd see an increase in uh, filings on the corporate side, and once that trickles down to sort of the average Canadian, to the employees of those organizations, and uh, just across the country as a whole, that we would see the consumer filings pick up later. Um, it you know it's really unfortunate because we just understand that the financial impact of the pandemic on Canadian businesses and on individual Canadians as a whole is going to be so substantial and, you know, it it actually it almost becomes concerning to see the numbers go down so low just in this quarter for the consumer side because we understand that we're going to see the pendulum swing way the other way and, um, you know, you just, it it, it really makes you understand just how many people out there are really, really struggling and uh, we certainly don't don't want to, um, we don't want to frighten Canadians, but we also want them to understand what their options are and to know that, you know, if you are struggling financially, it's closer to the end of the year once the dust has really settled, that it's going to be important that you get all the information that you need and understand what you can do uh, to deal with your creditors because we don't want there to be unnecessary unnecessary suffering and heartache out there. If there is an option to help resolve the situation, certainly uh, Canadians really do need to take advantage of that because that's the goal is to get themselves financially back on track. We're already struggling with unemployment employment and changes in the job market and so where individuals can get that break and really focus on reestablishing their lives it's going to be important that they do so.
0: And here we have an opportunity a few months before all of this stuff uh, the the programs the benefit programs end and so on and if you can sort of feel that sort of Damocles hanging over your head you know this is not going to end well all things being equal uh, then it's it's probably a good time to make some plans now to try to avoid or mitigate the damage as much as possible so let's talk about those options jennifer before the the uh nasty phone calls and and threats uh, by mail and all the rest of that stuff begin to stack up at the front door and you would start to withdraw from society uh well we have a chance to 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 map out a plan what are the key ingredients
3: well, individuals need to first total up the debt and and under, have an understanding of how much do I owe? What's the interest rate associated on each of my accounts? What's the minimum payment? We certainly recommend for anybody who's going into debt at this time because I mean the reality Sterling, you and I both know, there's probably Canadians that are actually incurring debt they're avoiding insolvency filings, and if they have room on accounts, they probably are going into debt at this time before they deal with the situation. So access the credit that has the lowest interest rate, if at all possible, and do build out a plan to pay it back. Um, a lot of individuals are struggling with what to do, though, when they don't really know the job market. It's difficult for them to understand what is my future income going well, to sure. be, how stable is the employment going to be. So having an understanding of just you know what the income is at the current time right now and what the expenses are and trimming back those expenses to the extent that they can, it's going to be very important. Now, uh, come the fall, when sort of there's a bit more of a reckoning happening because these deferrals have ended and, and we don't know what the AI program looks like, um, we are going to encourage individuals to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee, know that options exist like a consumer proposal where an individual can actually negotiate a settlement. It sounds like, how can I, how can I negotiate a settlement with somebody when I don't know what my income is going to be? You can still put a proposal forward to your creditors even if you're on an EI program. Look, if you want to make an offer to pay back your debt and to reach a settlement with the creditors where you pay it off over a five-year period, you can still do that. There's no restriction. Um, So you're going to work with the trustee on what your options are. We also see that there's Canadians that are going to decide that maybe a bankruptcy is the best option. It tends to be the shortest process, the quickest process. And for an individual that has low income or on fixed income, um, sometimes that option really is is the most desirable process because it really means they get out of debt and they get out of the process at the shortest amount of time as possible. So uh, certainly there, there are options to deal with the debt. You don't have to look to an insolvency filing right now. You can just do the minimum and look at your budget. But you could sit or, down and
0: talk with a trustee yeah. and, and you don't have to wait until you're up against a wall with a gun stuck in your ear. It's wise and it's not you're not doing anything wrong by sitting down with an insolvency trustee well ahead of, of ever dealing with insolvency and Jennifer I'll leave it there because I'm fresh out of time and as always I'm terribly grateful for yours we appreciate it very much good to have you back Thank you for having me, Sterling. Jennifer McCracken, easily found at BDO Debt Solutions right here in Vancouver. We have, and full marks to producer Julie Wong for tracking this elusive guy down. We found John Reynolds somewhere in Ontario. We're going to talk conservative leadership race for a few minutes. Mr. Reynolds, of course, former conservative cabinet minister, former member of parliament for North Vancouver Sunshine Coast. John, good morning. Good morning. So where do we find you in Ontario this morning?
4: Well, I tell you, I just moved into a summer college with my children, and we were in Home Depot buying some goodies, and that's why I was a little late. I, but, uh, well, we're, we're glad we just, found it you.
0: It's a movie, anyway. Uh, okay, we, we're glad we found you. So let's talk a little bit about this leadership race. Do you have a favorite going in? Should we establish a bias up front in, in this conversation, John?
4: Oh, no question about it. Peter McKay is my favorite. Uh, I've uh, endorsed him. I've donated money to his campaign. And I think he will be a great prime minister.
0: What about the platform? Uh, I find that uh, when a lot of people, there's not a lot of conversation, and you know this because you're in a cottage country in Ontario, uh, this is not exactly front and center in terms of people's conversation items. The we thing is certainly getting a lot of attention, perhaps negatively towards the government, but very few people are talking about the conservative leadership race. But those who are, John, are concerned that they don't stand for much other than we're not liberals and that just isn't good enough
4: well I, I i think you're right to a great degree but mainly because of covid it's had a unbelievable effect on the fact that you can't have the public meetings you're doing things on zoom and yeah uh, it just it's not the same it's not as exciting as it used to be uh, i mean I, I can remember the thrills of being with Stephen harper when we put uh uh, in fact, three nights before the election, uh, four thousand people in a hall in Saint Catharines and everybody's cheering and stomping, and, and and you're being asked questions by the media. Uh, that that's not there. But uh, Peter does have a full uh, program. Uh, he's put it out there. Uh, there's not an issue that he hasn't talked about. And uh, but it just doesn't get the coverage. It is summertime, as you said. I'm in I'm in summer country area in Ontario, and. Uh, uh, my neighbors talk about politics because they're conservatives. I didn't know that after I bought the home, but I found out later. <laughs> it made me very happy. I was just
0: going to say, that must have been very reassuring What you discovered the neighbors were uh, flying the same political flag as you.
4: Well, it was quite interesting. My neighbor said to me, do you know Ray Novak? I said, of course, he works for Stephen Harper. He said, oh, my son works for Ray Novak. So
0: it was great. So let's talk a little bit more about the need for conservatives to engage the imagination of Canadians, John. And I get that it's summer, and I get that a lot of us would would really, really prefer to talk about and think about anything but politics. But nonetheless, you've got a leadership race under the way. You've got a government that's, once again, just staggering around from a self-inflicted wound, uh, and yet you don't have, you don't have, I don't sense uh, any energy flowing to the conservatives, or for that matter, from them. How do you amp up the energy, John?
4: Well, we have. We darned near tripled the membership. Uh, close to 300,000. Uh, that's amping up pretty darn good in a slow time. Uh, the donations are very, very good. Uh, Peter's way ahead. I think Peter is more than all the other candidates combined. Uh, I think he's over half a million now. Uh, so the, the excitement is there within the party. And I think once Peter is the leader of the party, uh, and of course, we're going to be then looking at an election coming up sometime in the near future, uh, especially with these scandals that are taking place. I know I I saw another one last night on the news where uh, this chief of staff's husband got a massive grant for some program. I mean, this is typical old liberal stuff. God, they play into our hands. Uh, I can't believe how good it is right now from a conservative standpoint. If you had to go to the polls, People don't like that kind of stuff. They don't like your friends making money off the fact you're a prime minister or a cabinet minister.
0: John, one of the things that uh, has come up recently prior to the we business exploding in their faces was the notion that the liberals might consider a snap election, given the fact that they've been giving out uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in in uh, benefit programs and responding fairly quickly and fairly effectively to the pandemic and the economic crisis that it has brought. So there was some speculation they might try for a snap election this fall. But it's pretty safe to say that we has a deep six to any snap election fantasies they may have had. Would you not agree?
4: No question about that. As stupid as they are on some of these issues, they're not that dumb to call an election. But the Bloc Quebec law uh, may see an opportunity here uh, to think they can gain some seats in Quebec because of this scandal. And so you know, we, we, we'll see some interesting days after our race. We're only two weeks away from having a leader. And once that happens, the uh, tone will change, I think, with the public. will get into September. Uh, people will get back to work. Kids will get back to school, we hope, anyways. And uh, I think things will be a lot different. I, and I think Peter has got the maturity. Uh, he made a good decision of getting out of politics when he did Went into law practice in Toronto where he was extremely successful built a new base of friends and uh, and especially business people across the country so I, I'm quite excited about what's going to be happening in the very near future.
0: Okay, let's talk about, uh, you were talking about the uh, the uh, increased uh, activity inside the Conservative Party that may not be noticeable to outsiders, and talking about increased memberships, and I would assume that also involves increased financial donations. But as I'm checking the National Post in the last couple of days, they ran a story the other day that had Aaron O'Toole moving ahead of Peter McKay uh, in terms of the fundraising side of things. And- and uh, with the stacked second-choice ballot uh, way of electing a leader this time around, I suppose it's only reasonable to ask, for example, you, a Peter McKay supporter, that if Aaron O'Toole ends up winning the leadership contest, can you live with that?
4: He'll be my, get my 100% support. Whoever wins the race, wins the race. It's, it's fair. They have, they've had a good battle. And uh, whoever wins is going to get my support. And I think that's the same for... Probably 95% of you. There's a few people who won't like it one way or the other, and that's the way things go in politics.
0: Well, you know, a couple of uh, new people or newcomers to the political scene, especially for British Columbians, uh, Derek Sloan and uh, Leslin Lewis, uh, Ontario MPs both, uh, there, Ms. Lewis particularly, is, uh, uh, is seen as being quite an interesting candidate, if for no other reason, John, she's not a professional politician and sort of breaks the mold in a lot of ways. Very
4: nice lady, very nice person, Uh, would make a great cabinet minister in Peter McKay's government, and I'm sure she will be there if she gets
0: elected. Uh, And what are you, now we know that, for example, the Conservative uh, Party pretty much owns the province of Alberta, Saskatchewan also very much uh, in friendly uh, Conservative Blue Territory. The the West, with the exception of Metropolitan Vancouver, uh, is pretty... Uh, leaning conservative, but of course you can you can run the country, John, as you well know, because you've been at the cabinet table many many times. You can run the country with Toronto and the province of Quebec, and that's pretty much what's going on now in terms of Liberal support.
4: Well, we're doing very well in British Columbia. Colin Metcalf has been running the campaign for Peter. He's one of our best organizers in the whole party. Uh, was one of the key Harper organizers. And they've done very, very well. Our numbers are looking very good there. And in Quebec, uh, you know, the Bloc is probably going to benefit more than anybody from these scandals. Yes, but I also think uh, we'll increase our seats in Quebec. Cause Peter has some good respect there, and uh, I believe people. I believe people are going to want to change again. They, they're tired of these scandals on the liberal side. And I think the Liberals have got a serious, serious problem. So
0: what would the message be, John, if you could boil it all down to one message, regardless of who wins and you're, you're behind McKay, if McKay or O'Toole win, so the Conservatives have to bring a unified, one-line, strong message to Canadians out of the convention and into the next phase. What would that message be? The message would be that we're going to be honest and we're going to create some jobs in this country. The country
4: needs jobs. We've got a serious problem. And I agree with you that uh, the Prime Minister has done a good job on COVID, but it's also been a good job supported by all the political parties. People did take the politics out of that issue and all work together because it's a serious, serious issue on everybody's behalf. But I think uh, people now are going to have to look at how do we create jobs to get everybody back to work?
0: interesting stuff the the government of Canada is doing what we pay them to do John they're governing they're uh, managing in a in the face of a pretty serious crisis, a global crisis and and doing well the job that they're doing is is, is is it's too too early in in history to be able to judge reasonably what they're doing but they have responded quickly and you're right it's uh, across all parties and that truly is the kind of government you need in a crisis.
4: No question about it.
0: John Reynolds, thank you for this. We appreciate taking time out of moving in Ontario on a Sunday to join us back home in in Vancouver. Thank you very much. Former Conservative Cabinet Minister and still a mover and shaker in the party, John Reynolds, former Member of Parliament for North Van Sunshine Coast. At a Port Moody City Council meeting a few days ago, our next guest made the point that if Port Moody wanted to put itself on the map and become a, a, a destination like Shamanis on Vancouver Island, it could help uh, by encouraging the painting of murals on building exteriors, rather than say, oh, I don't know, charging fees to, to have murals painted. And city council listened to my guest's point and said, yeah, you're right, and voted unanimously to drop fees for painting murals, our guest is an artist herself, so has a kind of a bias, you might say, towards murals and other works of art as being good for communities. She is Port Moody City Councilor Zoe Royer. Good morning and welcome, Zoe.
5: Oh, hi. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's good to have you with us. So, did, were you surprised by the unanimous support around the council table the other day? Oh, yeah.
5: Well, I was just. Um, I, I was just thrilled you know it the last thing that we want to do is load up fees and processes onto something that would be just so wonderful for city of the arts
0: Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about shamanis given that you pointed to that specifically as an example uh, in in terms of the direction port moody could take and look what would happen if we did so let's talk about shamanis
5: Well, when when my daughters were young, um, something that we would do, it was sort of an annual pilgrimage, we would go to the Shimanus Theatre Festival, and we would see a wonderful play, we would tour the town and see their murals, and and incidentally, my uncle actually had painted murals over the years in Shimanus, and it was just so fabulous. And, you know, I thought, what was it? What, how did they start this process, Chimane? Is How did they become on the map as that little town that just did it? Yeah. And um, when you look back at their history back in the 80s, when the council had voted to support a re- revitalization project in their downtown core to attack uh, economic t- development and restore sort of beauty, that was a year before the mill went bust. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was a community of three or four thousand people, and seven hundred people lost their jobs. But this businessman, which is also interesting, not an artist, a businessman had an idea. His name was Carl Schutz, and it was painting the history of shamanus on the buildings, and. They've been doing that for decades now. They um, they have, uh, I think, about forty murals, and they have a festival that maintains that. And over time, they attracted three hundred fifty thousand dollars of investment from corporations, from individuals, governments. They have, you know, brought about three and a half million dollars of tourism Mm -hmm. to their small community, and Port Moody could do this.
0: So it looks, Shamanos, and, and we've been there, Shamanos is, uh, it looks like a community that really cares about itself. It's very welcoming that way because yes. you literally can drive around town and learn a whole <laughs> lot in the most pleasant possible way, Zoe. <laughs>
5: 100 <laughs> percent
0: so what No, no. Uh, the idea of port, Mo- port moody is going through some amazing expansions i mean with SkyTrain being pushed through and all of those new uh, condo clusters around all of the stations and so on just a, an enormous amount of revitalization going on in port moody to the point where uh some would say that it's it's almost it almost feels like it's starting to get away in 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 from the 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 community feeling that port moody has always had so i suspect zoe this is a way to try and restore some of that feeling of community
5: yeah absolutely and you know we could one of the things that was supported at the council table was even the idea of having a competition Mm -hmm. where we could attract artists to participate that would be a sort of a, a a a reward for that um, and have, it could be an artist-led mural, it could be created by uh, one or a group of artists, but it could also be community projects where the community actually participates in the creation of the mural itself. And um, during, well, we're still in COVID-19, aren't we? But, mm, sure are. Um, we had, um, there was this this wonderful um, project that happened um, at the beginning of COVID, and it was created by a woman named Ladon Shellstad. She's a Port Rudy resident, and she lives in the neighborhood of Clahani. And what she did was she started painting murals on the, um, the, the garage doors of her home, of neighboring homes. It's a multifamily development, okay. and people loved it. And it was just sharing happiness, bringing the community into a process. People were lining up for murals. People were visiting them. And it was bringing happiness Mm -hmm. to the situation at hand. And it really does get the community sort of involved. And, you know, it, it, it just shares love. And I guess that curiosity and a sense of discovery, like what you feel when you're when you're going through Chimaneus, right?
0: That's right. Well, I look, I look at Gastown with the, all of the lovely, lovely tributes to Dr. Bonnie Henry that have been turned into murals and other <laughs> pieces of art as one drives through that part of town. And it's very warm and very, very human as well. It's it's a wonderful touch. And there's a new mural. I, I suspect you would know about this, being a an artist and being a mural enthusiast. <laughs> this weekend at Brentwood, there's a 4,000-foot mass massive mural uh, <laughs> no. being uh, unveiled uh, in the Brentwood area, part of that new development. So again, this is a thing, Zoe. This is murals <laughs> work. Uh, is there, you. Are, are you aware of, of other cities uh, in the world or, or here in North America that like Shemanis, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't have to be a city, it's just a community that is renowned for its murals as an attraction for visitors?
5: Um, specifically for murals? Well, um, not not specifically, but certainly for, you know, um, a real commitment to the arts. And I can think of definitely some of the bigger U.S. cities. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, and then the cities around Europe and, and even, I might add, um, in Russia, <laughs> where at one point they were investing so heavily in the arts that even their underground stations in Moscow are covered with sculpture and murals and just a, it's a it seems to be where they put quite a bit of their wealth actually was into public art. Um and you know, I, I think that it's it's just that commitment. It's like the commitment that the North Cowichan Council made sure. many years ago. Back right? in the eighties, yeah. So- what do we want what do we want to be about? And, yeah. Right? How do we want people to experience our community? And for Port Moody specifically, how do we live into that moniker of city of the
0: hearts and it's that it's that commitment yeah true so we've only got a minute here zoe so uh, if, if i'm an artist or a person who is interested in uh, participating in murals the mural creation in some way and now i'm hearing port moody hey they not they've they've dropped that <laughs> fee and now they're really kind of keen to have murals in their community how do people interested in making murals go about connecting with walls
5: yeah, well, you know, it's very, very new. So it was just at our very last meeting in July. But I would say a couple of things. One is um, contact um, contact our manager of cultural services okay. Devon Jane. So that would be D Jane at Portmoody.ca and that's D is in Devon. Devon J-A-N, Jane, yeah. Yep. J A I N at Portmoody.ca. Or or come come as a delegation to council and say, you know, <laughs> every day our family walks by this wall. I'm an artist. I've created murals or whatever, whatever the mission is. And, and here's, what, here's what I see. And so, I'd
0: like to help. So you're inviting people to participate. Good for you, Zoe Royer. We appreciate that very much. Lots of opportunities ahead. Thank you for, uh, for getting up early and doing this with us today. Oh, well, my
5: pleasure. And am yeah. sorry. One last thing. Um, but they can also they can just write to council. Yep. Council at portmoody.ca.
0: Council at portmoody.ca. We'll check back with you in a few weeks and see how this is going, Zoe. Thanks for this oh, this morning. Wonderful.
5: Oh, thanks so much have a great day you too
0: always a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the airwaves of this radio station he is the big guy at research company he is mario Conseco out with a new survey about our anxiety over our finances mario good morning welcome back Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. It's great to have you with us. Now, this one is just out a couple of days ago. The headline is, Fewer Canadians are feeling financial anxiety during the pandemic. And this is a strange one, Mario, only because we've just gone through just a dreadful second quarter of 2020 when uh, the numbers across the board, unemployment, productivity, and all the rest of it are down, down, down. And yet, you're reporting, after extensive uh, surveying, that more of us are actually feeling, well, at least a little less anxious about our personal finances. Square that circle for us. It's really odd. Well, what we see
6: here is a situation where the numbers that we saw when we asked these questions back in April were very disheartening. We saw a a much larger number of uh, Canadians who were concerned about uh, finances. Uh, We had at the time 41% of Canadians who were worried frequently or occasionally about being able to pay their mortgage or rent, which is a huge number. This time around, it's down to 31%. So we have a reduction in the numbers that we saw. This doesn't suggest that everybody's doing fantastically at this stage. I mean, we still see a lot of people who are struggling. We have certain pockets in the country where the things are not going as well. Uh, We see it in Alberta. We see it with Canadians aged 18 to 34, who are more worried about unemployment affecting their households. Uh, But the numbers might be the start of a good trend. We are doing this every four months. So I'm hoping that when we go here uh, and ask the same questions in December... Uh, the numbers would be lower. So it's a bit of a silver lining, but there's still a long way to go.
0: Well, interesting. We had an insolvency trustee on the program earlier this morning, Mario, and we sort of ran this by her. Uh, and, and she seems to think that, you know, and, and here's here's a number that I wrote down uh, some notes while she was talking, Jennifer McCracken from BDO. Uh, insolvency filings here in British Columbia are down 29% in the second quarter, down 30 35% year over year, and down 42 percent nationally what what her analysis produced and I this is for your comment is that from her perspective this seems to show that the government programs like serb are working, that Canadians who uh, have been uh, thrown out of their jobs or otherwise been uh, rendered unable to pay their bills except through government programs are receiving the money and the money is uh, being effective for them in the short term. Is that Did that come up in your surveying at all?
6: It's definitely something that is related to this because we see that there's a lot of Canadians who have uh, had the benefit of uh, having access to all of these programs. Uh, it's something that we definitely see as well in the level of satisfaction that we see with Canadians when it comes to the federal government's handling of COVID-19. Right. It's been a difficult time politically because of the situation related to the We Charity, uh, also um, the situation that we have in the United States with Donald Trump and, and some of the things that he's saying. But the numbers for the government on the handling of of COVID-19, both provincial governments and the federal government, tend to be quite high. So it's more a situation of having a certain level of respect, if you will, for what the government is doing. And also knowing that maybe you or somebody who you know was able to collect this money and was able to use it while things got a little bit better. Yeah. Obviously, it's not something that is uh, going at the same rate in every part of the country. And we still see people who are worried frequently or occasionally about uh, their employer running into serious financial trouble, 29% or almost 40% who are worried about unemployment affecting their household. But the numbers are definitely lower from what we saw back in April. So it might be the start of a trend that takes us to the next level.
0: It's interesting that you would point to the example of the next door neighbors, where of course, they're still trying to hammer out uh, another round or another extension of the benefit programs that have been uh, awarded to Americans. And uh, the president has authorized some funds, uh, I think a couple of hundred dollars less than was requested per person per month nonetheless it's it seems that the money is not getting through to individuals as rapidly in the states and perhaps other jurisdictions as it is in Canada so the surveying mario reflects as you say the fact that a lot of us feel the government has our back no matter whether well, we, no matter whether we're yeah. supporters politically of the government or any of that that politics all aside, most Canadians feel that this, this crisis, and we were just talking with John Reynolds, a former Conservative MP, who pointed out that, you know, in, in, when it comes to dealing with the crisis, all the political parties have set their politics aside and focused on getting benefits to Canadians as rapidly as possible. And that's sunk in pretty effectively, hasn't it? It's
6: a definitely a different example from what we see in other countries around the world. You know, this isn't a crisis that is uniquely Canadian. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that the way in which it has been dealt with by the governments has been uniquely Canadian. I agree. It's been different in the sense of other countries where you do not have the same access to things, where you have a situation where most of the economy is still informal. You get paid for something. There's a a lot of situations that never get tracked. Uh, There's a lot of tax evasion. It makes it much more complicated for a government to say, give us your bank account and we'll send you some money. Mm -hmm. It's not something that can happen everywhere. And the main difficulty in the United States has been that this is happening in an election year. You have a situation where uh, the commander-in-chief is saying, well, we're sending the checks, but we need to make it look like it's a campaign thing. We need to make it look like we're helping them because I need their votes 89 days from now.
0: Well, yeah, and he was, uh, as I recall, some of those checks were actually, uh, instead of signed by the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, they were signed by the President. Uh, Yes, of course, it's impossible to ignore an election year, especially when Mr. Trump is involved. Back to Canada, though, uh, and I know this has nothing to do with your surveying of our economic well-being or not, but as you surveyed Canadians, and this is just in the last couple of weeks, uh, there was, prior to the WE scandal breaking, Mario, there was some chatter about a snap election in the fall did you have a chance to sample people's opinions about that before the government shot itself in the foot and the wee thing broke
6: we asked about it more in the sense of the level of comfort that canadians could have about having an election at this stage part of the reason for this is that we are deeply enthralled in what is happening in the united states the level of coverage of the trump administration supersedes anything that we saw before when Obama was president, when George W. Bush was president. So we're following that. And we're imagining the scenario. We're imagining what it's going to be for Americans to go and try to cast a ballot in November in the middle of a pandemic that is definitely at a lower level when it comes to uh, how it's been dealt with than what we have here in Canada And the appetite from Canadians uh, to head into an election uh, is really not there at this stage. You know, it's not a situation where we think that it's wise to try to do that, uh, partly because of the social distancing guidelines. Mm -hmm. There might be a scenario where you can have a specific way of doing this or you could vote by mail. If you have to do it, like it's the case in the States where they really can't postpone the election, and when we asked Americans about it, they said, no, we don't want to have anything uh, that uh, stops us from voting the way we always have in November. Um, But Canadians just aren't there right now. I don't think there's an appetite for it necessarily, but also – Um, it's not a situation that is going to endear Canadians towards the federal Liberal Party if they decide to force this through, even if they were doing better uh, because Uh, of the wee scandal. uh, Yeah,
0: even without the wee scandal. However, now here in BC, and you're a BC guy, you must know that Mr. Horgan and his uh, people have quietly asked Elections BC to quietly have a look around and quietly give an assessment of what it would take to have a snap provincial election in British Columbia during a pandemic this fall. Uh, The Greens, their allies in the legislature, don't seem to be too keen on the idea. The Liberals are essentially in disarray. Uh, What do you make of the prospects for Mr. Horgan and company to pull off a snap election locally, Mario?
6: Well, I think part of the situation here uh, is the political advantage that they could get out of it. It's easier to recruit candidates very quickly when you are in government. It's much more complicated for the Green Party to try to find candidates for every riding, like they have in the last few elections,
2: mm-hmm.
6: uh, and also for the BC Liberals to try to uh, have a process that is going to allow them to nominate people fairly quickly. Uh, we've seen a couple of these nominations, uh, but it's not something that has uh, that can be done very easily, partly because of the pandemic, um, I think there is an opportunity here uh, to have a discussion about whether this actually matters at this stage. Uh, if you have a situation where you're not being bombarded by the opposition with the threat of being toppled, right. um, there's no need for something like this to happen. I think it's ultimately something that needs to be discussed uh, very directly directly. Um, between the leaders of these three parties, and and I think part of the situation here is. There is a notion that because the Green Party is going to have a new leader, maybe the deal that you signed All right. uh, to not be toppled mm-hmm. was signed with a different leader, and now you know everything's off the table, kind of thing. But I just don't think that BC residents are going to react very well to a situation where um, you're being told that you have to vote again.
0: Yeah, it, re- it does uh, kind of uh, reek of opportunism, doesn't it? Even though they uh, British Columbians, and you know this, are, are essentially quite satisfied with the provincial government's response to COVID. I would think Dr. Henry is a rock star as far as any surveying goes, uh, and Mr. Horgan and Mr. Dix benefiting from her uh, her popularity as well, and they're doing a pretty good job of managing. But to try and translate that into an extended mandate, uh, the word is appetite, and I don't think there is one either. I agree with you on this one. I think it's quite minimal.
6: Well, and you know, one of the things that we also need to consider is we don't know how this pandemic is going to evolve you know the numbers have been definitely better here in british Columbia than in other jurisdictions right but if you have a situation where you say okay we have to vote again by october and then uh, something happens in September after yeah. the kids go back to school and then we're back under lockdown it's a very complicated campaign i think we're seeing part of that in the united states where you're actually having a situation where the conventions are going to go through with very few people uh, with fewer speeches, you know, the, the whole pageantry of a campaign is going to be missing here. And that isn't beneficial for the government that's in power.
0: Absolutely. John Reynolds said the same thing too about uh, the conservative leadership race with all of the inability to gather. Uh, the energy level is, despite the fact that, you know, they've got Zoom and lots of financial contributions, the energy level countrywide is quite low because people, there's there's no meetings allowed. You can't go to barbecues and conventions and conferences and politics policy discussions, and all that sort of thing. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Company. He is one of Canada's better-known pollsters. And Friday was a busy day over at Research Company because in addition to the poll that Mario and I have been talking about, fewer Canadians feeling financial anxiety during pandemic, they also released this one. Most Americans reject delaying the 2020 presidential election. An interesting combination of polls there on Friday for you, Mario. Two completely different topics. But let's move on to that second one, if you don't mind, because we're hearing all sorts of bizarre things about the 2020 presidential election, uh, in, including uh, the uh, the attack on the United States Postal Service by the administration uh, in order to somehow or other undermine uh, the validity of mail-in votes. Uh, and uh, the uh, again, as you've already mentioned, uh, political conventions are pretty much. Uh, gone. So, uh, talk to us about the surveying you did with Americans and and their desire to keep the November election when it's supposed to happen.
6: Well, what we see more than anything is uh, that there is no partisan polarization when it comes to the notion of delaying the election. Uh, we were expecting Democrats to say no, we don't want to delay this election. Of course, we felt the same way about independent voters. But we also saw it uh, when it comes to Republicans. Uh, There's a a majority of Republican voters who say there's no need to delay the election. This goes against everything that the country stands for. And there's definitely not a situation here where the Trump base is going to react very well to this message. You know, we've seen them react very well to other messages that he sent over the past few months. uh, But this is not one that they definitely respect. And I think this definitely uh starts to open the notion that you know yes you have republican voters who vote for the party for reasons related to values or the people who they have serving in the senate or or in congress uh and are starting to get a little bit tired of some of the antics of the president and it shows when you have more than half of them saying I will follow you to many places, but not to a delay of the election.
0: Interesting. And of course, the only the only uh, body with the authority to even consider delaying the election is Congress. And there's already been pretty strong indicators from uh, all sides of both houses that that's just not on the table.
6: No, it's definitely not something that the president can do. It hasn't been the first time for Donald Trump when he realizes that he doesn't have the same kind of power that he maybe imagined when he ran for office. Um, It's not a situation where Congress is going to say yes to this, partly because it's the election for all of them as well, and a third of the Senate. So it's uh, it's not going anywhere. I think also uh, what we have here is a situation where there's already some states that vote by mail. Uh, mm, Washington yes. State, Oregon, but they vote by mail. Sure. So it's not something that is going to change if you tell them that they can't go to the polling station because they don't do it anyway.
0: How about support? Uh, what, what are you able to determine that uh, we're still three months out and uh, we're seeing in a number of polls that uh, we're watching on the United States channels that Mr. Biden appears to be ahead of the president by anywhere from 8 to 12 points. So the average would be 10. Ten is that? Does that square up with your findings?
6: Yes, we have him. Uh, when we look at decided voters, uh, there's an eleven point advantage for Joe Biden. Uh, he does remarkably well with young voters and with women, uh, also with African Americans. Uh, the numbers for Donald Trump are not where they were in the last election, and we need to remember that he lost the vote at the national level to Hillary Clinton by a couple of points. He got forty six percent of the vote the last time. Obviously, he won the state that he required right. to. Uh, secure the electoral college, and that's fine, uh, and that's also the way in which this campaign is, is is going to be fought. But at this stage, you know, we're less than three months away from the election. Um, he's nowhere near that level, so that would suggest that there are states that he won the last time that he won't again. Um, but ultimately, and this is something that we are going to be getting into in the next couple of months. We need to figure out what happens with the big prices. We need to figure out whether the Democrats can recapture Pennsylvania, if they can win Michigan, if they can win Wisconsin. Those three states alone, if they flip from the Donald Trump column to the Joe Biden column in 2020, would be enough to get him elected. Uh, But he's also trailing badly in other places. So it could be an election night that is uh, quite short when it comes to figuring out who is going to win.
0: And yet they say that unless Donald Trump uh, is uh, is defeated by a significant majority, uh, there's going to be some reluctance to um, honor the outcome of the election if it's a squeaker. What do you hear about that?
6: Well, I think there's definitely a situation where people are wondering what would happen with Donald Trump. He's always been a person uh, that is hard to figure out when it comes to reacting to things. You know, he was talking about the the uh, idea of an electoral fraud in the last election yeah. back in 2016. He's doing it now that he's the president. Um, I just find it quite amusing that uh, usually when you have this transfer of say, a power in the United States, uh, the former president is taken out of the White House by helicopter. Uh, if he behaves this way, it might have to be a Black Hawk and not uh, Marine One.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Interesting stuff, Mario. I want to just very quickly uh, just sample back to B.C. for a quick second. Were a snap election to be called, would the new Democrats, do you think, get the majority they currently lack? Or would the notion of being too opportunistic come back and smack them right in a kisser?
6: Well, the last time we checked politics uh, in in B.C. was in May, and we saw a situation where the level of support for the NDP was definitely higher than what we had in the last election. The B.C. liberals were a little bit lower. The big question in this election is what can happen with the B.C. conservative party, because we have seen them mentioned by a lot of people as a party they would vote for. But in the last election, they only ran in a few ridings. So what happens with that conservative vote could actually play a big role in whether the BC Liberals can have a campaign that would rival the NDP.
0: Interesting stuff. Mario Canseco, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's a treat to have you back.
6: It's a treat to be here. Thank you,
0: ResearchCo.ca for all of the stuff that Mario's been talking about in terms of his most recent poll findings. And it's a pleasure to introduce our next guest. I do believe this is the first opportunity I've had here on CKNW to introduce a Nobel Peace Prize winner to our listeners. Back in 2017, our next guest accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of her organization, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. Is joining us from Toronto. She is a, a survivor of the bombing of Hiroshima. Her name is Setsuko Thurlow. Ms. Thurlow, uh, good morning and welcome to CKNW.
7: Thank you. Good morning.
0: It is, uh, it, it, this is August the 9th. So, back 75 years ago today, the, U, the United States dropped the second of two atomic bombs over Japan, this one over Nagasaki. Three days earlier, on August 6, 1945, the uh, United States did uh, the same over Hiroshima. That's your town. You were there. How old were you?
7: I was 13, grade 8 student at the junior high school.
0: Tell us about your experience, please.
7: Well, I was not at school, but at the Army headquarters. At that time, Japan was losing badly, and they had to depend on the physical labor that the student provided. I was recruited to work for the Army. I learned how to decode secret Messages. Ah, and I and a group of about thirty girls were together uh, on the second floor of the wooden building, about one mile, one point eight kilometer away from um, center, the center of
0: explosion. What time of day did the bomb go off?
7: Just at the beginning of the working day, at eight o'clock, we started the assembly. And then at 8.15, when the major was giving us the pep talk, then I saw the bluish-white flash in the window. Uh, That was 8.15 in the morning.
0: Do you have any recollection of following you? You saw the flash outside the building before feeling the shock wave or even hearing the noise. You saw the flash first. Do you have any sense of how long it took for the shock wave to knock you off your feet and knock the building down?
7: I I don't think I had any sense of the time, but I do remember the the moment I saw that bluish white flash. My body was flown up in the air. It was floating up there. I do remember that sensation. And when I regained the consciousness, I found myself in the total darkness, total silence, and I was pinned by the collapsed building. I could not move. So I knew I was facing death. And then I started hearing the faint voices of my schoolmates, God help me, Mother help me. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was not alone. But uh, it was a calm, serene feeling, and facing death. Then all of a sudden, I felt a strong hand shaking my left shoulder, and strong male voice said, "Don't give up! Don't give up! Keep pushing! Keep moving!" And uh, I'm trying to free you. You see the sun ray coming through that opening. Move toward that way. Soon as I free you.
0: And this, that, was, that, this, this was a soldier. This somebody that, right.
7: I never saw in the dark, but somebody he took. Yes, he rescued my life. So I crawled out. By the time I came out, it was on fire. That meant most of my classmates in that rubble were burned to, burned to death alive.
0: How long did you? Uh, how long did you lose consciousness for? In other words, you you were I not. I you... no idea. Okay. I had no sense of time. So when you came out into the firestorm that followed the atomic explosion, what did you do? Where, uh, did you try to go home?
7: No, that wouldn't be very dangerous. We were on the outskirts of the city. Yeah, I say, at the military headquarters. So there were lots of uh, injured uh, officers and the, uh, the soldiers. And uh, they directed us. You girls uh, escaped to the nearby hill. But it was so dark outside. You see, it happened in the morning, right. bright summer morning. But by the time I came out, it was dark, dark like uh, twilight, And then I started seeing some moving black object nearing me and it was a procession of ghostly figures. I say ghostly figures because they didn't look like human beings. Mm. They were just a mess, just Parts of the bodies were missing and flesh and skin hanging down, bleeding, burnt, blackened and swollen. They they could not walk. They were shuffling slowly from the center part of the city to where I was. And we were told by the soldier, you girls joined that procession and escaped to the nearby hill. That we did by learning how to step over the dead bodies. Now, all I heard was uh, whispering from the injured lying on the ground, Mm. water, water, please, water, please. Sure. That's all they said. Nobody was shouting or running. Nobody had that kind of physical, psychological strength left. Oh, they just begged for water. So we three girls managed to go to nearby stream and wash off all the blood and tore off our blouses, soak them in the water, and dash back uh, to the heavily injured people and put this wet uh, wet
2: On their blouses faces. Yep. over
7: their mouths. Mm-hmm. And they sep- desperately sucked out the moisture, sure. that was the only kind of so-called rescue operation. I quickly looked around, but there was not single medical doctor or the nurses. Of course, they themselves were killed, you know, up to 9%, I 90%, I understand, of the healthcare professionals were killed. All. So the remaining Professionals must have been working somewhere else, but not in where I was. Where I was, it was a huge place with the two football fields put together. And the place was packed with the dead bodies and dying people. And that's where we spent the whole day. Just a futile effort, but that was the only thing we could do. Try to comfort the dying people. Mm-hmm.
0: And were you, did you end up being in that place for a few days then?
7: Um, next day, I my parents came to look for me, so to get, no, I left that place and moved on with my parents to where my sister, my sister and her four year old were resting. Apparently my sister and the child, were walking over the bridge to go to medical clinic at that moment, and they had no chance, and they were just uh, uh, burned and yeah. blackened Yes, but they they survived for several days.
0: And your parents, but your parents survived the bombing too.
7: My father was out of town; he was fishing at the sea, oh. and from the distance he saw the rising mushroom cloud in the home. Somehow he managed to come home. My mother was doing the dishes after breakfast, and then she, too, had to be rescued. She was collapsed, and she was um, pinned in the collapsed building.
0: Interesting stuff. So
7: the memory of my sister and four-year-old child was just horrendous. That little fellow... It really was transformed into a piece of burnt, melted chunk of flesh. And uh, he was still begging for water. Anyway, when they both died, the soldiers came, dug up holes in the ground, threw the body, poured the gasoline, threw the lighted match, and that was the cremation. There was no dignity. Or
0: ceremony. Yeah. Them. Ms. Thurlow. It's like if,
7: animals or insects.
0: Yes. If if you oh. would, please, I'm going to get you to stand by. I need to take a station break. Setsuko Thurlow is our guest. She is uh, on the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, she was in Hiroshima on the 6th of August. It was the 9th of August. That would be today, 75 years ago, that the atomic bomb was used for the second time in the Second World War. Our guest is an international celebrity. She is a Nobel Peace Prize recipient. On behalf of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, she uh, accepted the Peace Prize on behalf of her organization in Oslo in 2017. She has uh, received numerous distinctions and awards. She is a member of a rather unique group. They are the Hibakusha. They are the atomic bomb survivors of uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Our guest is Setsuko Thurlow, who was 13 in August of 1945 when the Americans dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima, her hometown, and three days later on August 9th on Nagasaki. Uh, you were uh, wonderful in describing an indescribably horrible situation on the day of the bombing in Hiroshima, Setsuka. We appreciate that, but let's move forward a little bit to the campaign that you've devoted your life to, the abolition of nuclear weapons. You wrote a letter to uh, heads of state uh, to close to 200 countries around the world, uh, including Canada. Canada, with respect to the abolition of nuclear weapons, what success, if any, did you enjoy?
7: What success? Well, I have been getting the responses from heads of state, many countries like Ireland, uh, Hungary, Turkey, and so forth, but uh, not a single response from nuclear weapon states because and they didn't appreciate the kind of thing I wrote, because I did say uh, the only way we can have the security is by by getting rid of all the nuclear weapons. But the countries which own the nuclear weapons don't want to give up That's right. the nuclear weapon. They want. They call it the deterrence by having more uh, wicked weapons they have and the safer they are. Well, that is totally unacceptable to me as someone who has seen masses and masses and masses of burnt, by, you know, child, yeah. um, oh, I can't think of the right word. How can a human being accept that kind of situation.
0: It's My it's
7: witnessing was by the small scale primitive nuclear weapon. Today, uh, we say one nuclear weapon, that is so, so many times more destructive. True. And we have uh, up to 14,000 of them, and most of them are owned by Russia and United States. And as Mr. Obama said... United States is the only state which has actually used uh, those wicked things uh, indiscriminately, uh, and uh, therefore United States has a special moral responsibility. I-, I was, and the whole world community was delighted when he said that no other President in the office have said that right, but unfortunately uh, not much has happened during the regime and Right now this president uh, is Keep saying horrible things and starting the testing again. That means more weapon and uh, More than trillion dollars have been allocated to sophisticated what? they have. Anyway, they are determined um, to keep what they have, yes. or to improve more, to have more sophisticated weapons. That, uh, to me, is uh, insanity. And they have the illusion that somehow that's a way we have to maintain uh, security for human beings. I think that's madness. That has to stop. In order to make that Stop, and people have to be pressuring the government, and people first have to find out what kind of world we are living in. This is a nuclear age, and it's very different from what we knew as a little kids. And so we have to do studying, thinking, and then imagine. I think imagination is required. And uh, just do some critical thinking, and then when you have an opinion, I think you have to communicate with the, poli- the policy makers, decision makers. That is, federal government. Mr. Trudeau has the power to discern. Unfortunately, uh, he has not been, maybe he's not interested, no, he has some reason not to be too honest or um, public with his opinion. I don't remember hearing anything about him to talk about nu- nuclear weapon policy.
0: Interesting stuff, because he certainly has a lot to say in terms of taking moral positions on global uh, initiatives. Setsuko, I have to leave it there because I'm out of time. I am very, okay. gr- I'm very grateful for yours. I know you're going to keep up the good work. You've spent your entire life doing nothing but. But we are grateful for your participation with us today here in Vancouver. Thank you Thank so much. You.
7: I hope everybody works. Everybody study about it. Okay, thank Thank you. you.
0: Setsuko Thurlow, one of the survivors of the 1945 bombing of Hiroshima this 75th anniversary week later.